sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Do you recognize these sounds? certain age, you would recognize them from The Six Million Dollar Man, a TV show about a man who after a severe accident is rebuilt with robotic parts and devices, and The Bionic Woman, a program with the same theme. Or maybe you recognize this sound. This, of course, is from the classic film Blade Runner. What these two shows and film have in common is that they depict medical devices implanted into the brain. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, the healthcare of adjusting brainwaves, tremors. Then, could the answer to depression be modulating brainwaves without medications? Brain devices designed to adjust brainwaves to manage brain diseases or conditions are no longer the subject of science fiction. This area of medicine is called neuromodulation, and it's now big business and even a standard of care for certain medical conditions from chronic pain, seizures, urinary incontinence, and even migraines. One of these conditions is tremor, an involuntary movement of the body. Tremor is incredibly common, especially among middle-aged and older adults, although it can occur at any age. The disorder generally affects men and women equally, Although tremor is not life-threatening, it can be embarrassing and even disabling, making it difficult or even impossible to perform work and daily life tasks. However, there is good news when it comes to this symptom because there are several treatments available, including a brain device that's incredibly effective at controlling tremor. Given how common brain devices have become and the dramatic growth in the healthcare system that has arisen around neuromodulation, we're devoting our show to the concept of adjusting brainwaves to manage two very common conditions. We'll show you how far these devices have come and help you understand everything that's involved. To start us off, we welcome Jan Carey to our program. Now, Jan reached out to us to propose this topic and had a tremor and was recently treated with a brain device. Jan, welcome to our program. Thank you. Pleased to be here. It is a pleasure to have you here. Jan, for our listeners, uh, can you tell us your story? Uh, when did this all start? I started noticing that I had tremors maybe eight, nine years ago. And for at least three years, I tried to convince myself that I was making things up, that I didn't really have shakes, that it wasn't, it wasn't anything to be concerned about. 
And gradually, particularly in the last two years, it got significantly worse. There was no hiding it. There, Clearly, my hands were shaking. Um, so I started then doing um, what one would do, going to Dr. Google, <laughs> wondering <laughs> why my hands shake, what was going on, how do I avoid um, embarrassing situations, and... That began a journey of exploration, and um, very happy to have found Mayo Clinic. But the social aspect of having essential tremor, it, as you mentioned from the top, it's not something that is painful, but the social anxiety that comes with it is extremely difficult to navigate. Well, let me let me delve into that a little bit. Um, how did the tremor impact your social life, if you will? Can you can you give us a flavor of that? When you're eating in a group of people um, and you can't hold a fork or you can't um, hold a cup or you're trying to carry a cup of coffee from point A to point B and the coffee is going all over the floor, um, it, it's very difficult. So then I, I consider myself a person who has a, a significant strength of character, but I just felt like I wanted to avoid social settings. I wanted to not eat in public. I would find myself in client meetings trying to take notes, but because my hands were shaking so frequently, they would call me out and say, are you all right? <laughs> and um, so it's extremely, it, it plays with your mind. I guess when you put it like that, I, I, I get it. Work and uh, social life. At what point, Jan, did you say, I, I'm, I need to do something about this. I, I got to get help. I, uh, about a year and a half ago, I said, I'm going to put myself on the wait list for Mayo. So I went to um, neurology at Mayo Clinic, put myself on, and I was hoping that I would get a call quickly. But um, many, 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 many people want to come to Mayo Clinic. <laughs> and many people want to come to Mayo Neurology. And I, I also suffer from migraines. So I originally started my journey through the Baptist system and was thinking that I would get through there a little bit quicker. Um, I had the good fortune to meet a representative from the equipment that uh, Mayo uses. She lives in my neighborhood, and um, that started a relationship. I heard Dr. Tipton speak at the Panavidra Beach Library about essential tremors, and I was like, Oh, I need. To, I I want this doctor. <laughs> I I want to get in here. And fortunately, things were able to work out. And while there was a significant wait, um, I've had the the first hand done now this last January fourth. Jan, uh, before you got to Dr. Tipton, uh, what treatments did you try of any before you had? this implanted? I first studied a, a number of systems that are online. Um, there's a bracelet device called Calatrio. There are the various manufacturers that have deep brain stimulation. When I first heard about brain surgery, I said, no, no, that that is not going to happen. <laughs> not on any any concept of God's green earth. There's got to be 47 other things I could do before I go to that. So I was adamant that I would not have that. I would have this wonderful wristwatch or I would have some non-invasive system. And, you know, once you live with it for a while, and I've heard, had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Tipton speak several times, 
And one, he's very reassuring. <laughs> People don't die when they have DBS. As much as it seems like somebody's going to be monkeying around with your brain, it just couldn't be a scarier concept. But it is very reassuring to know that this is a process that's been done for over 20 years. Yeah. And the science behind it is getting so exact, even in the last couple of years, that the fact that they can pinpoint that exact spot in your brain, it's just amazing. But did you, did you try uh, medications or anything before I um, actually was in a clinical trial for Botox. Oh. And um, so my tremor is actually in my upper arm, but sure. manifests itself in my hands. And um, so tried this Botox, um, and fortunately, it did not work. Unfortunately, it was not successful. So, so you waited, then, and at that point, then you said, I want the device, and I'm going to go down that road. I was pretty sure I wanted it as of, as of last summer, but it's a matter of just waiting to work through the process and try to uh, work yourself closer up to the line. Completely understand. And let me add another voice into this conversation, Dr. Philip Tipton. He's a practicing movement disorder neurologist at Mayo Clinic and Jan's doctor. And he also joins us now in studio. Dr. Tipton, welcome to our program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So let's kind of fill in some blanks uh, with regards to the science, the condition, the medicine of all of this. Can you describe what is a tremor, and specifically, what is an essential tremor, given that, that this is what it's approved for? Yeah, so essential tremor is essentially a tremor, um, hence the name. Uh, so when we think about shaking, oftentimes we'll think that shaking means tremor, but shaking can mean a lot of different things. But if you think back to, what is it, high school geometry or trigonometry, one of those sine waves, it's a regularly oscillating frequency. Um, and so if you look at someone's hand, you're going to see sort of this regular oscillating frequency. And essential tremor, it's pretty common. In fact, it's the most common movement disorder that we have, um, depending on what you read. Uh, upwards of 10 million people in our country alone may have essential tremor. That's huge. I, I know that when anyone brings up tremor to me, the background question that they're often wondering is, do I have Parkinson's disease? Uh, is, is this, I mean, how do you tell the difference between something that's benign versus a, a Parkinson's disease situation? Yeah, that's a great question. You're right. That's usually the, the question that's looming in the background when someone comes into my office with a tremor. And I, I always say all that shakes is not Parkinson's disease. And so when we think about uh, essential tremor, that's really a tremor, as Jan already mentioned, that's affecting your, your actions. It is an action tremor. So if you think about bringing a, a soup spoon to your mouth, it's hard to keep the contents in the spoon. Or if you think about you know, trying to sign a check or write your name, that's when the tremor is going to come out. But that's fundamentally different from the tremor that occurs in Parkinson's disease, which is primarily a rest tremor. So that's going to be a tremor that you notice when the arm's not really doing anything. So maybe when someone's walking and you see a little bit of shaking coming out. Or uh, one of the scenarios that I like to mention um, is if you're laying in bed at night and your arms are laying by your side, everything's supported, and then you start to hear the rustling of that tremor. You know, the arm is completely at rest, and that's when the tremoring's coming out. So oftentimes, someone with Parkinson's disease may be tremoring, but then when they go to bring the soup spoon to their mouth or go to sign their check, the tremor goes away. So it's almost the opposite from essential tremor in that regard. Now, there is some bleed-over effect. It's not entirely black and white, but at its, at its base foundation, that's a critical difference. So if one wants to make the diagnosis, is this done by a specific test, or is it uh, a, a clinical evaluation? By and large, the uh, differentiation between these two will be from a clinical evaluation. Sometimes it can get tricky, and so bringing in a, a neurologist or a movement disorder specialist to, to make that distinction uh, can be very helpful. 
Um, we have other tools at our disposal where we may use electrophysiology to actually um, do a quantitative study of the tremors to understand when they're there, how fast they are, what the amplitudes are. We can really characterize things with at a level that we, we haven't been able to do in the past. And so all of those tools together can really make sure that we're on solid ground in terms of the diagnosis. But oftentimes, essential tremor can be diagnosed in the primary care setting and usually is right. But there are some other mimics that we have to consider. To all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, we're discussing the healthcare of adjusting brain waves, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Dr. Tipton, if someone gets the diagnosis of tremor, is this device the first thing brought up, or are there treatments that are done before you get to this? I always say that, you know, if, if we can control a symptom with a pill instead of surgery, we should try the pill first. And so most of the time that's what's happening. Um, and as Jan already mentioned, she investigated a lot of those things. And um, so there are even some devices. So even before the, the pill stage, devices like the Kayla Trio or even some weighted silverware can help someone get a, get a soup spoon to their mouth without having the tremor interfere. There are lots of, of really cool devices out there that can significantly improve someone's quality of life. But after that stage, then we are talking about the oral medications, and that can be really helpful for a lot of people. Tends not to help all types of tremors. Um, there are some people that we know are going to respond better or, or not so great. A lot of that depends on where the tremor is most predominant. Um, and that's another kind of distinguishing feature between essential tremor and Parkinson's disease is what body parts are tremoring. Essential tremor, pretty much anything is game. So you can have tremoring in the hands, which is the thing that we most oftentimes will think about because we're using our hands. But you can have tremor in the legs, in the torso, in the head, and even in the voice too. And so when it comes to the medications, it's really the tremor in the arms, the hands that respond most favorably, whereas tremors elsewhere in the body usually don't respond as well. And so from those medications, from an efficacy standpoint, how well it works, that's one piece. But then there's also the side effect piece that oftentimes limits us in terms of being able to use those medications. No, I just heard Jan just tell us and all of our listeners out there that when she first heard the concept of brain operation, no way, let's find 45 other ways. So let's let's get into this then. Tell us about the surgery itself. So deep brain stimulation is a surgical procedure, as you mentioned, um, that involves placement of a very thin electrode into the brain. And it's thin. It's about the, the diameter of kind of the ink cartridge that you might find in a ballpoint pen. It's about 1.3 millimeters to be precise. So I think about a ballpoint pen ink cartridge. So we're inserting that electrode deep into the brain to a very small target. So it's a small electrode into a small target. And at the end of that electrode, we have the ability to generate an electrical field, all with the goal of interfering with brain circuitry that's responsible for a person's tremor. So essentially, we jam the circuitry, we fix the tremor. Are there side effects to this? So... As a surgical procedure, there are always side effects or you know, potential risks of a procedure as any kind of neurosurgery goes, even though this is a relatively small uh, neurosurg uh, neurosurgical procedure. There are risks of seizures. There are risks of strokes or bleeds in the brain. And yes, there is a risk of death, but fortunately, we've gotten very efficient at performing these surgeries, so those risks are very small. When it comes to risks that are kind of unique to the deep brain stimulation itself, some of the things that we talk about are there's a possibility that someone's speech might be adversely affected by the deep brain stimulation, or someone's balance could be adversely affected by the deep brain stimulation, or someone's cognition can also be affected by the deep brain stimulation. So those are important things to discuss before surgery so that we can identify who are the best candidates for deep brain stimulation because we've identified things that make an individual more likely to have these side effects. And so we try to steer, uh, steer patients accordingly based on their risk versus benefit pro uh, profile, if you will. 
How effective is this overall? Uh, all comers, is it, if you uh, pick the right person, it's definitely going to work? Uh, how, how effective? DBS is incredibly effective. Uh, that's why I get so excited talking about it. Um, so depending on where you go, you might hear 80% benefit in 80% of patients, or some people will say 90% benefit in 90% of patients. That's not a typical number that we get no, to talk about no. with other medications. So it's really phenomenal, and I think everyone, our patients and providers, get excited when we get to see this work and really impact lives. One of the always big questions in anything we do in healthcare has to do with price. Um, what kind of costs are we talking about? Is this insurance covered? Is this Medicare covered? Uh, because uh, we all know that we have all these amazing things, but my goodness, uh, the prices keep rising and it's just not accessible. Well, DBS is not cheap. Uh, I was actually uh, looking up prices for different places, and you know, you can depending on where you read, you're going to see different price tags. But we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. I was reading 30, 50, even north of those numbers. But the good news is, it is covered by insurance, uh, even Medicare as well. So um, that takes a, a large chunk of that financial burden off of our patients. How quickly do you see the result? Is it turn it on, voila, uh, we're done? Uh, or is this going to take us a long time? I'm not a patient guy, so that's why I like deep brain stimulation as much as I do, because a lot of the, the improvements that we see are almost instantaneous, um, especially something like tremor. Uh, we're able to see the, the changes almost immediately. Um, and that begins in the operating room, actually. So after the, the electrode has been placed intraoperatively, we're able to assess someone's tremor while they're still in the operating room, because at the end of the day, who cares if it's in the place that we think we want to be? We want to see that we've actually done what we set out to do, which is to eliminate someone's tremor. And so, you know, th time is a precious commodity in an operating room. And so it's a good thing that we can see the improvements happen quickly. And we do. Uh, all of these devices also have batteries. And uh, as someone who is always at at stores picking up spare batteries, uh, it seems I'm always changing a battery somewhere. How long is the battery life? And what happens when the battery goes out? Yeah, well, it certainly lasts longer than my iPhone, that's for sure, <laughs> which is dead. But um, these batteries, um, I guess I should say I, I'm relatively early in my career, and I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of giants where um, the battery life was not very long. But recently, we've had uh, the emergence of rechargeable batteries. And oh. so um, uh, one battery in particular is FDA approved out to 15 years in this country and 20 years in Europe. So we're talking big time longevity. Previously, we would have discussions about every three to five years, a person would have, have to come back to the clinic to, to have the battery replaced. But now we're just waiting for those batteries to come back. So uh, just so I'm clear, you don't have to change the battery, assuming you have those long life batteries. Right, right, right. So 15, 20 years is when we expect for those batteries to need to be replaced. And when they are replaced, it's not another brain surgery. It's, it's removing the, the battery, which is kind of in the same place as a pacemaker, just below the collarbone. And so it involves taking that battery out and putting a new battery in. So what exactly happens at medical appointments um, when the person comes uh, to see you uh, after they've had this implanted? So I mentioned that at the, at the bottom of every electrode, we have different contacts, and that's where we're able to generate an electrical field. So at its, at its basic principle, that electrical field is, is a sphere, you know, picture a golf ball. So that sphere, we can move it around, we can move it up and down the lead, we can turn it into a football shape, American football shape, or we can spin it around in different directions. And that's all important because, again, we're looking for a very small area within the brain, and there are nearby structures that we don't want to affect. So we may get side effects such as slurred speech or tingling in the fingers. That lets us know what neighborhood we're in. But fortunately, with the electrodes, we're able to steer away from those things and go to a place that's going to give us maximal tremor effect. And so these appointments in the clinic are really us programming the device, trying to shape the field in a way that minimizes side effects and maximizes tremor benefit. 
Dr. Tipton and Jan, I'm going to try to use the magic of audio to see if we can demonstrate um, what happens with programming on and off. Uh, Would you mind, uh, Jan, if Dr. Tipton turned the device on and off and we could hear the difference uh, in in, um, how your voice sounds and all? Happy to do so. So this is what Jan's voice sounds like with the DBS turned on. And this is what it sounds like with the DBS turned off. Jan, I heard that difference, how your voice just stuttered. Does it hurt when you have that programming done? Does it feel, do you feel anything? When you hear that you're going to have brain surgery and you have to be awake, that that was the mental hurdle that you have to sort of get over, being awake when somebody's going to drill into your brain. But honestly and truly, it, it didn't hurt. It, the, the sensation was more one of vibration, which Dr. Tipton has explained is really about like your ear canal, whatever. But it was, there was no sensation of pain, actually. It was more just a discomfort from vibration. Have you noticed a big difference in your life since this has been implanted? I can't possibly tell you how the magnitude of difference. It's it, it, it's such a social uh, change to be able to feel comfortable in any kind of social setting. Uh, the essential tremor just makes you want to will into yourself. It just makes, it would be very easy to be a hermit and say, I, I don't want to deal with the stairs. I don't want to deal with the anxiety of it. it. It makes me mad at myself because you can't control your own limbs. And so the change in having this surgery that was so successful and so immediate, it's like I got my life back. It's really amazing. I can't wait to have the other hand done. I'm smiling and I'm feeling your sense, your just total sense of enthusiasm and and thankfulness for this. Um, Jan, what other points do you want to make or share with our listeners out there? Maybe they identify this or maybe they know someone. What do you want to share with them? I think no one quite understands essential tremor except for the person that has it. As much as we have fabulous medical professionals and facilities and treatments, unless you're living with it, there's part of it that you'll never quite understand. And that's why I am really, really delighted to be serving as the essential tremor, the First Coast Essential Tremor support group leader for this area. We have about 30, 35 people that are coming together once every two months in Nocatee. We're meeting at the Baptist Health Place. Our next meeting is February 7th at 11 o'clock. Everyone is welcome. You don't have to have essential tremor yourself. Perhaps you are a caregiver or a loved one. Perhaps you suspect that your brother or father or mother has essential tremor and you just want to learn more about it. It's a place where we can be real with one another and share our stories and have some understanding that we are not alone in this. As much as I'm thrilled to have had DBS and think, oh, now I'm cured, I will always have essential tremor. It's not that it's gone away, because when I turn that stimulator off, my hands are going to shake. Dr. Tipton, in our final moment, um, where can listeners find more about this? Uh, And where else are these procedures are done? So there are some great resources for essential tremor. I think the International Essential Tremor Foundation is probably the best resource, and so you can visit uh, essentialtremor.org for information about the disorder as well as support groups. Um, 
Uh, Mayo Clinic also has a good site um, with information about essential tremor, too. As far as DBS, it's done at most academic institutions. Um, there are several places within the state of Florida, obviously Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville being one of them, uh, but there are many places throughout the country. So usually there's a site you know, pretty close to where you're at. Well, I want to take this opportunity to, to thank you both. Uh, Jan, first, let me thank you for bringing the story to our attention. We have loved featuring it, and I'm just so delighted to hear how well you're doing. And to you, Dr. Tipton, uh, first of all, for your care, your marvelous care of, of Jan, uh, but also for sharing all your insights with regards to this. It's, it's just amazing uh, to see this and hear it live uh, with all of us. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to patient Jan Carey. She has essential tremor and recently had a brain device, deep brain stimulation implanted uh, to help manage it. And Dr. Philip Tipton, he is a movement disorders neurologist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville and her physician uh, who helped uh, craft this therapy for her. And up next, we explore another form of neuromodulation, this time for depression. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? One thing that everyone can agree with in the United States is that we are in a mental health care system crisis. Depression, anxiety, and numerous other mood conditions are rampant, and our current therapeutic options are limited. Many patients I talk to don't want or like the way that many currently available antidepressants make them feel or the side effects associated with these meds. However, there is another approach, neuromodulation. Transcranial magnetic stimulation is approved for the management of depression and does not involve medications. Dr. Daniel Lewis, he's a psychiatrist at the UF Health Jacksonville, joins us now to talk about this approach. Dr. Lewis, welcome to our show. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here. It's great to have you on. Let's get right into it. How common is depression in the United States? Sure. So in the United States, um, it's more prevalent in uh, young adults. So adults under 30 uh, with as many as 20% experiencing depression in any given year. Wow. And across all age groups, um, probably about 5 to 7% of all Americans will experience a depressive episode in a given year. So we're talking about millions of people. Uh, yes. So the National Institutes of Mental Health, uh, the most recent data they published, which was pre-COVID um, in 2020, they estimate uh, 21 million adults uh, in the year prior had one major depressive episode. I imagine post-COVID, it's all increased as well. It certainly has uh, the isolation, the economic impact, the increased substance use, the death, the toll it's taken on families has certainly increased the incidence of depression and anxiety alike. I got it. Let's let's get into this topic because uh, we're doing a show here about adjusting brainwaves, if you will, for healthcare. Uh, what is transcranial magnetic stimulation? It's a mouthful. I know it goes by TMS, but mm -hmm. what what is this? Yeah, so uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, was first FDA approved in two thousand eight for the treatment of depression, and Essentially, what it involves is using powerful 
alternating magnetic fields similar in strength to what you would experience in an MRI machine. Mm -hmm. And what those magnetic fields do is stimulate neurons, which are the cells, the little machines, the wires in our brains. And these are underactive in depression. And by stimulating them, uh, we're able to effectively and safely treat the depression. Wow. So basically it's working by doing this increasing stimulation of these, of these nerve cells in the brain. Correct. And so we're able to target that stimulation, that magnetic impulse to about the area, maybe the size of a small grape or a marble. Got it. So we often think of the management of depression with medications. There's so many antidepressants out there. At what point is something like this offered to a patient? Do you have to have tried a medication before you arrive at this? Sure. So I have not been able to find a comprehensive list, but uh, I've tried to make one, and I figure there's between 35 and 40 FDA-approved medications for major depression. 35 to 40? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and many that we use off-label um, that don't have the indication. And what we've found from large, you know, very land landmark trials, such as the STAR-D trial, is that about 50% of patients are not going to respond to antidepressants, um, and about a third of them uh, will never see any sort of remission, uh, regardless of how many medications or the combination of medications they are on. And what we see every day in consulting patients with patients with treatment-resistant depression is years of medication trials, maybe a little bit of relief, but no remission of symptoms, followed by another trial of medication, a combination of medications, side effects, unintended consequences, and um, just really no relief from the depression. So you definitely have to have, sounds like failed uh, the antidepressant medications before you get to this one. So CMS recently. And that, that's the group that is Medicare, right? Correct. Okay. The governing body for Medicare, which is the, um, their guidelines are typically the way that commercial insurance will eventually uh, line up with. Um, they've recently um, published uh, less restrictive guidelines for the approval of TMS for patients with Medicare. Um, and that is failure of a single medication uh, because 50% oh, wow. of patients will respond to the first antidepressant. And those that don't are quite unlikely to ever respond to medications or a combination. Oh, that's interesting. And the longer that someone is depressed and their brain is depressed and underactive, like a dim light bulb, um, the harder it is to get that light bulb shining bright again. And we have very good evidence of this and we are thrilled to see um, other stakeholders, you know, looking to increase access to this treatment. So how effective is this stimulation treatment when it's tried uh, in these folks? Sure. So in large meta-analyses for treatment-resistant depression, uh, the remission rate is anywhere from 60 to 80%. There are newer 
accelerated treatment protocols that are being developed that um, have response rates uh, approaching that of ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which is still the gold standard. Um, and that would be uh, in the 85 to 90% response rate. When you say respond, what does that mean? Does that mean that their mood changes or what, what, how do you define response? Sure. So in our clinic, we define response as a patient no longer being clinically depressed. Oh, wow. So they're no longer having symptoms of depression that impair them in personal, professional, social, or other aspects of their life. So um, they, their family, uh, and their doctors, you know, no longer see them as depressed. Does this help with other related conditions? Let's say anxiety or, or maybe chronic pain? Sure. A fascinating part of neuromodulation is that the brain can be given the same power of an impulse in the same exact place but by varying the frequency, how often the brain receives it, that stimulation could either have an exciting effect on the brain or a quieting or inhibitory effect on the brain. And so for the treatment of depression, we're using a high frequency stimulation to activate the brain. For the treatment of anxiety, we use a slow signal um, actually on the mirror opposite side of the brain as we use for depression. And uh, it is effective for anxiety. It's also um, was recently FDA approved for the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. Really? And the FDA has fast tracked uh, TMS for approval for the treatment of bipolar depression, which is even more difficult to treat than major depression. Let, let, let me uh, help to see if our audience can envision what this looks like. Is uh, I This isn't something that you go home and, and put it on. This is something that you have done to you in the office. Explain to us maybe the logistics of how you get this therapy. How is this done? Sure. So this is done in the outpatient office or clinic setting. We do it here a few doors down from my office. And what this involves is sitting in a chair similar to a dental chair. So the feet go up, it leans back, your neck is cradled, you're comfortable. And the device is positioned up against your head um, and kind of like a, um, like a big hairdryer. Um, and it sits there and it goes click, 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 uh, for 19 minutes. Um, and so patients come in, they receive their treatment for six weeks, Monday through Friday. And they typically come in, you know, the same time every day, staff meets them, gets them positioned, they receive the treatment and then they're out the door. Um, quicker than a dental cleaning. And um, in our clinic, we, we've had 100% of patients who've started the treatment have finished the treatment, which is fantastic yeah. because coming to the doctor every day for six weeks uh, is a big ask. And so we're thrilled with that. Um, and that's essentially what the process is. When it comes to uh, receiving this therapy, is, is there any side effects that we have to worry about? Sure. So the big side effect, the biggest, most severe side effect that we would worry about would be seizures, right? Anytime that we are stimulating a brain, um, if we overstimulate it, right, 
uh, we can cause a seizure. And so for TMS, the risk of seizures is one in 80,000. Uh, so it exists, however, it is a very rare side effect. The most common side effect is some scalp irritation and a mild tension-like headache. And that is typically experienced the first two or three days of treatment, and then it goes away. And we've successfully treated multiple patients who suffer from chronic migraines, and they were able to tolerate the treatment without any worsening or triggering of migraines. Let me ask about uh, how does this work in conjunction with meds? Is this um, instead of meds? Is this and with meds? Uh, how does how does that work? That's a great question. So we tailor a treatment plan to each individual patient. So for some patients, due to their other medical problems or side effects, medications are not a safe option. And so for them, we may not be using medica medications. However, for the majority of patients, they are on medications which we will optimize for the treatment. There are also medications that we may add during treatment to try to really optimize the stimulation that the brain receives. How long does it take before you see results, that you see a person respond? Is this fast? Is this uh, after the six weeks? Uh, how long? So as a psychiatrist, I'm not used to quick responses. Um, <laughs> compared to my colleagues sure. in other specialties. <laughs> However, <laughs> often um, we're able to notice a difference, not necessarily that someone is no longer depressed, but perhaps they look a little brighter, they're carrying themselves a couple inches higher, or their family has noticed they have more energy, or they'd like to go out and do things. And very often we notice those changes in the very first week of treatment. Oh, wow. And so it's extremely uplifting for the staff and the patient because we're able to see that while we still have further to go, right, we're headed in the right direction. And then we continue the stimulation to reinforce those circuits in the brain to try to keep them active for as long as possible. Is this treatment lifelong? Are you committed to this for the rest of your life if you're one of these responders? That is a question that is being researched and time will tell. What we know is that for the patients that we are treating, and providing relief with TMS, very often the first relief that they've ever had from their depression. The studies tell us that the odds that they have another depressive episode are greater than 99%, right? They are inevitable. Okay. This is the nature of depression. It is a relap relapsing illness. It is a recurring illness. However, with this treatment, we're often able to provide patients relief and remission for an extended period of time, even years, and then they may need to be retreated again, sure. In our final moments, uh, Dr. Lewis, can you uh, give our listeners uh, a place where they can find out more information about this? I know that there'll be a lot of curiosity uh, but where would you direct folks to get more information about this therapy? Sure. So we have an informational page and video on our website, which is ufhealth.org and slash transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, if you were to Google, 
um, or your favorite browser, UF Health Jacksonville TMS. It'll direct you to information where we discuss the evidence, the safety, the process. Uh, we have informational video there as well. Dr. Lewis, I want to thank you so very much uh, for joining us today. This is fascinating, and I think you've given hope uh, for folks that may feel medications just isn't working or isn't uh, doing anything for them or creating too many problems. We really appreciate you uh, sharing all of this information with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to do it because this is a treatment that's changing lives and um, something we're going to continue uh, to do every day. I appreciate that. We've been talking to Dr. Daniel Lewis. He's a psychiatrist at UF Health Jacksonville, and he joined us to talk about transcranial magnetic stimulation, a way to deliver therapy that adjusts brainwaves to manage depression. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva is our director. Next week's program is our Heart Health Valentine Show. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jcerver. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.